You're listening to Journal Entries, a podcast about philosophy and cognitive science, where researchers open up about the articles they publish. I'm Wesley Buckwalter. In this episode, lead author Jonathan Phillips talks about his paper, Knowledge Before Belief, forthcoming in behavioral and brain sciences. Jonathan is an assistant professor in the program in cognitive science at Dartmouth. He's the recipient of the Stanton Prize and an APS Rising Star for his work in modality, theory of mind, causal reasoning, moral judgment, and happiness. An important part of interacting with other people is treating them like they have a mind of their own. It doesn't sound like much, but when you stop and think about it, it's actually pretty fascinating. Researchers call our capacity to do this theory of mind. We observe how somebody speaks or acts, and then we theorize about what's going on in their heads, what beliefs, desires, emotions, or feelings they must be having that would help us make sense of all that we're seeing. An enormous amount of research in philosophy and cognitive science has narrowed in on one part of this in particular, the capacity to represent what others believe or think about things. And because of all this focus, one might be tempted to think that this is the most basic theory of mind capacity we have. But is this really what the evidence shows? Jonathan and his co-authors argue that it doesn't show that at all. This paper takes up a question really in theory of mind, and it asks about which kinds of theory of mind representations are most basic. And it argues that As far as theory of mind goes, knowledge representations are more basic than belief representations. We try to say a little bit at the beginning about how you you should understand knowledge and belief if you're going to try to figure out which one's more basic. Um, And we point to a couple of features of of knowledge that we think basically everyone agrees on knowledge representations should have that. Um, So knowledge is factive. um, Knowledge is more than just or justified true belief. Um, Knowledge has this interesting feature where you can have, it can... You can have knowledge WH or knowledge how, right? You, or um, one way of thinking about it is you can represent people as knowing more than you know, as well as knowing less than you know. And knowledge um, is not modality specific, so it seems to be the most general fact of attitude. Um, okay, so then we say, okay, given that understanding of knowledge and the typical understanding of belief, which of them is more basic? And we try to lay out two views for which one you might think would be more basic. Um, so I think there's lots of reasons I think like belief would be more basic. That comes from, I think, both the sort of conceptual analysis project from philosophy, where you treat belief as like the most sort of basic attitude that one could have, a representational attitude one could have. But also from a lot of the research um, in psychology, which really kind of focused on demonstrating belief really early in life and, and belief attributions early in life and things like that. And then we give some reasons to think knowledge attribution would be more basic as well. Um, I mean, one thing to think about is like, knowledge attributions seem to be much more limited than belief attributions, right? You can, the set of things you can represent people as believing is definitely going to be larger than the set of things you can represent someone as knowing. So maybe there's some way to thinking about knowledge attributions would be kind of the more basic process there. Okay, so then we basically ask, like, if you took a cognitive science approach to answering this question of which of those two is more basic, what would it tell you? And we use a bunch of different tools from cognitive science to try to answer that question. So one is... um, uh, like if you look at in non-human primates, so you kind of want to get a sense for when in the point in our evolutionary past did uh, knowledge attributions arise and when did belief attributions arise? And you might think sort of a, a clue to basicness would be whichever one sort of arose first in evolutionary history. 
And you can look at which uh, non-human primate species have certain abilities as a way of estimating when that ability arose. Um, we also ask when in like ontogeny or when in human development, knowledge attributions and belief attributions come online. And that's another way you could try to get something, get a sense for basicness. Um, we look at uh, linguistic development in young kids, like when do you start talking about beliefs, when you start talking about knowledge. We look at um, automaticity. Uh, so basically, are you, is it more effortless to represent knowledge or belief in, in say, in human adults? Um, and we look at uh, case, cases of patient populations with the idea that, well, maybe what is going to happen um, is that more basic capacities are, are conserved even in the face of other disruptions. So if you have some kind of disruption, maybe you'd still have the more basic abilities. So maybe that could also give you a, a sort of clue to basicness. And then we go through each of those different cases and we provide evidence um, that knowledge seems to be more basic using each of those different tools than belief does. We then turn to the question of, um, we, we do a, a little bit of experimental philosophy asking like, so that work wasn't so much on like the concepts of knowledge and belief, um, but is the reason to think that the in uh, experimental philosophy where you're really thinking about how people represent the concepts of knowledge and belief that there's a picture that is, fits well with this approach where knowledge is more basic, we argue that there is one there. Um, and then in the end, we kind of turn to this question of like, so why would that be? So like, why would knowledge be more basic than belief? And the answer that we give is, um, if you think of the features that knowledge has, um, you know, that it, there are cases where uh, it's not just true belief, say, like you can represent, um, you can fail to represent someone as knowing something when they're, um, don't seem to be sort of have the belief that they have in the right, it's not connected in the right way to the world. Or why would you, why does knowledge have this feature of being able to represent someone as like knowing more than you? That's kind of a weird feature. Like, so why would the representation that has these features, why would that be a basic one? And we argue, um, basically in contrast to a lot of the perspectives that have historically been the case in theory of mind research, that theory of mind isn't probably so much, or at least this basic form of theory of mind isn't probably so much just about predicting someone else's actions but it's more about uh, being able to learn from other people about the actual world. And so a lot of these features, say like the factivity of knowledge or that you want the person's like sort of mental state to be connected in the right way to the world or that you could represent others as knowing more than you make a lot of sense under that perspective where you can sort of use other people's representations of the world as a way of learning about the world itself. Um, and that's, that's basically where we end. The history of theory of mind research is, is an interesting cognitive science piece of history itself, right? Because you had it, the very early theory of mind research was Premack and Woodruff's paper, Does the Chimpanzee Have a Theory of Mind? Those published in Behavioral and Brain Sciences, same paper, same place as this paper. So that, you know, BB, BBS or Behavioral and Brain Sciences has this structure where there's a target article and then there are a bunch of responses to the article and then the authors like respond to the responses and it's all sort of published at once. Okay, so the original uh, Does the Chimpanzee Have a Theory of Mind paper this is like 70s, um, maybe early 70s, late 70s, I'm not sure, um, 78 maybe. Um, they said chimpan the chimpanzees do have a theory of mind. Here's why. Like you can, uh, they can figure out uh, sort of the piece to the puzzle of a problem that someone else is trying to solve. So if, a, if, an, if someone else is trying to open a door, they can know that they need to give them a key. Then in the commentaries that paper, a bunch of philosophers actually pushed back against that being good evidence for a theory of mind. And the reason they pushed back against it was because they said uh, the chimpanzees could be using their own representation of the world, like the fact that maybe a key goes with a lock, rather than attributing, really representing the mind of the other person independently of their understanding of the world. 
So they, a uh, number of them, uh, this is like Dennett, um, uh, Jonathan Bennett, uh, Jerry Fodor, and um, Zen and Polition all said, you know, no, no, the test you need to do is a, a false belief representation. You need to be able to, sh- if you want to show that they have good evidence that they have a theory of mind, they need to be able to show that they can represent false beliefs, which are sort of necessarily independent of the world. Okay, but that, if you think about where that perspective came from, from like a lot of the philosophers, maybe especially Dennett, it's a perspective on like theory of mind that seems to be like really focused on like our own sort of way of making sense of other people's minds so we can explain or predict their behavior, like really in focusing on belief representation, which has, you know, if we're doing, if we're really engaged, say like in the intentional stance sort of picture, that's going to be one where the contents of someone's belief can just sort of vary independently of like what, how that person um, is actually connected to the world or something like that. So I think part of the, way in which this paper tries to push back against that whole paradigm is to think about like, look, in our ordinary lives, like when we interact with each other, most of what we're doing is kind of like actually just like coordinating on the on the on the actual world, right? And very little of the way in which we make sense of other people's minds has to do with representing like false beliefs. That's like a very special case. Most of the most of the times in which we interact with one another they're about like, I don't know, did you also see that movie or do you know her, right? Or, you know, did you hear what she said about him? Like, can you believe that or whatever? Like that, um, all of these cases, they at least involve fact of mental state representation, right? Just things where I take the world to be a certain way and I'm asking like, do you also understand that piece of the world to be that way? Um, and so I think this paper tries to push back against the basic form or theory of mind being one where it's really focused on belief, which is kind of like my own special thing that I'm doing to make sense of you or predict your behavior, and rather thinking about us sort of jointly coordinating on the world. The origin of this project uh, was now, I think, yeah, like seven or eight years ago. It's one of those really long-term projects, but uh, back in grad school, I was got really interested um, in this research showing automatic false belief representation. This is work by Agnes Kovach and, and colleagues. Um, and I tried to follow up on it and, and replicate that work and then kind of extend it. And we ended up having a lot of trouble uh, replicating that work. It's not that we couldn't replicate the original effect, it's that we could replicate the original effect, but it didn't seem to work in any of the ways that we should if it were really a belief representation. Um, so. We ended up doing like 17 studies and figured out that at least largely it was due to this confound and like some really boring timing of an attention check that was indifferent between the conditions. And it was like kind of this really dark time. (laughs) I couldn't believe I spent that much uh, time and effort to find out about a confound. Um, At the same time, at at Yale, Laurie Santos uh, was doing some interesting work on monkey theory of mind. And I've been really interested in that. Um, And... Josh Nob uh, was also really interested in thinking about some of that stuff as like a knowledge representation. Maybe there's parts of the kind of philosophical background of what knowledge is that maybe could capture some of what Laurie was finding with monkeys and non-human primates. So we decided to put together this um, workshop or conference on cognitive science of knowledge representations. Um, and it included a, a bunch of people who ended up being authors on the paper. So uh, Wesley Buckhalter among them, uh, but John Turry and Ori Friedman, Alia Martin, Larry Santos, Fari Cushman. Um, and the idea was to bring up together a bunch of different people who had um, different pieces of the puzzle about how kind of knowledge representations might work. So some people were really working on like um, response time kind of stuff. Like, you know, how quickly can someone decide whether or not or attribute knowledge to someone or attribute 
uh, belief to someone. Some people were working like from the developmental perspective on like all these weird features of how and when kids succeed in attributing knowledge. Some people working on like infant stuff like Alia Martin, and some people working on primate stuff like Larry Santos. Um, and some people were doing experimental philosophy of knowledge representation, um, like Wes and, and John Terry. So we tried to get all these perspectives together in a single room and just chat. And I think one of the things we noticed was that there was just kind of this striking convergence from all of these different cognitive science perspectives. And that was sort of the birth room of the project, which then took about eight years to fully uh, conceive <laughs> or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. Doing interdisciplinary research in cognitive science, I think is really hard. Um, and it, just takes a lot of time and patience is my main experience. Um, so, I, you know, I think if you're looking for projects, to, if you're interested in doing this kind of interdisciplinary work and you're looking for projects, I think the main thing to start looking for is like, you know, basically arbitrage situations or, or situations where you can like kind of see what insight from one field and you think, oh, that might actually really fit well with something that's going on in this other field. Um, the, and that's kind of the easy part. I think you can find lots of points of that where progress has been two fields or three fields have been working on kind of a similar question without talking to one another. You can find discoveries from one field and, and, and offer those to another field and vice versa. And that's like where you'll find really good interdisciplinary projects. The hard part is like getting those people to understand what in the world the other people are saying. I think a lot of the work is basically trying to come up with a common language that people can speak to each other and have a sense of what the other people are saying and so that they can figure out where they do and don't disagree. And my feeling about that is that it's, you just have to have patience. Like I think all of the truly interdisciplinary projects that I've tried to work on, you know, this knowledge one or ones in say modality or thinking about how people represent possibilities, they just take like years and years. I mean, there's a project with Angelica Kratzer I think we spent five years literally just trying to understand each other before we could like really write a paper. Um, but it's kind of worth it, I think, in the end, too. So if you have time and, and patience, it'll, it'll pay off. If this paper has one key feature, it's just the overwhelming amount of evidence that we try to include in this paper. So, you know, everything from G to uh, infant studies to linguistic corpus studies to you know, studies with four-year-olds to patient populations to autom auto questions of automaticity with adults, experimental philosophy studies, and so on and so forth. Um, but I, so let me try to provide, rather than rehashing all of that, let me try to provide two pieces of evidence that I think are parts of that picture and that I think are really nice. Um, so one of them is kind of simple, and I think it's a good, good way to wrap your head around um, just the kind of evidence you're providing from human adults. So the way that this study worked is, is research that I did with Josh Novin and Fiery Cushman, um, and it also then extended in a project with Brent Strickland and um, some folks in France. Okay, people read a vignette about an agent, um, and it was just like, it, these are pretty boring things, right? It's like someone looking at, like reading in a, like a book of where the stars are because they get a new telescope, like pointing their telescope at the sky and then looking at a star and then having... Um, uh, you know, thinking that they're looking at a certain star. Okay, so there's some cases in which that would be true. Like it would be a case of typical knowledge. Like they correctly read the book. They just looked through the telescope at the star that the book told them would be there and then saw it. Um, some cases it would just, they would be ignorant of whether what that star was. So they would just like ignore the book, look through the telescope, see a star and be like, hmm, star. Um, and then in some cases they would have, um, it'd be kind of like a false belief case. 
So they would actually say be looking at Neptune or some other star and think they were looking at something else. Um, okay, then after they read one of those versions of the vignette, we would ask them um, to, to decide whether it was true or false that either that person knows um, that they're looking at a certain star or that they think they're looking at a certain star. Um, so it was a question of how quickly you can decide whether or not someone knows something or whether or not someone uh, thinks something. And we use think as a, as a proxy for belief, but think is, is uh, probably better if you're going to do a response time study because it's much more frequent than belief. That's just like a word philosophers use more. Um, the pattern that we found was both for when you're attributing knowledge correctly and denying knowledge correctly. And the easiest cases here to think about are like the knowledge case and the ignorance case. So whether or not you're saying it's true that they know it or uh, it's uh, false that they know it, those were both faster than persistence responses and they're saying it's uh, true that they think it and it's false that they think it in those two cases, respectively. What's interesting about that is it seems like, well, here's what they can't be doing if that's right, right? They can't be deciding whether or not someone knows something by first figuring out whether or not they think something. That pattern is like super inconsistent with that. So it seems like they're able, they have some way of determining both whether or not it's true that someone knows something and whether or not it's false that they know something without having processed, at least linguistically, whether or not they think that thing. So this is one piece of evidence, I think, that uh, knowledge representations seem to be sort of more basic or at least easier to compute um, in human adults linguistically. Totally different piece of evidence, which is one of my favorite studies right now, was um, uh, done by uh, Laurie Santos and Daniel Horschler. And I, I know they have another one or two colleagues that I'm totally blanking on, and I'm sorry to those colleagues. Um, but it's, it's published in Cognition recently, um, so you can look it up. Um, and, okay, so what they did was they're interested in these cases where it's basically like a, Laurie Santos calls this like a funky monkey condition or something, but it's basically like a Gettier styles experiment on monkeys. And they're comparing a Gettier style case in a way to um, a typical knowledge case. Um, so here, let me try to explain how they set it up. So the, there's an experimenter who is watching a ball move between two boxes. And uh, or say, I think it's actually a piece of fruit because monkeys are typically more interested in food. But whatever, say it's a lemon. Um, the, in, in the typical knowledge case, what, uh, well, actually, let me start with the, the Gettier case because I think that'll make more sense. So in the Gettier case, what happens is the experimenter is watching the ball moves. It moves into the box. Say it moves into the box on the right. The, there is an occluder that comes up that blocks the experimenter's perspective on what's happening, but the monkey can still see what's going on. The, while the experimenter's view is blocked, the, say, lemon moves out of the box, and it goes into the middle of the table, and then moves back into the box. Okay, so if you think about the kind of representation the monkey could be attributing or may, maybe think should be attributing in that kind of case, it'd be like a, a true belief. Maybe they don't have knowledge in the same way that some of the Gettier cases seems like they kind of disrupted the typical you know, connection with the world, but they'd still have a true belief in that case, right? The experimenter last saw the lemon in the box on the right, the lemon is now in the box on the right. They have a belief about the lemon moving on the box right. That's true. Um, maybe you even think they're justified in having that belief because they actually perceptually saw it go into that box. But it turns out like the thing that makes it true wasn't the original evidence, right? It was like the fact that it went back in while their review was excluded in that sort of get your style way. Okay. They then look at when the ex where does the monkey expect the experimenter to reach in that kind of case? Do they expect them to reach in the box on the right or to reach in the box on the left? Basically, what they find is that monkeys don't ex have any expectation for the experimenter in that case. They don't expect them to reach um, on, on the box on the right, which you might 
think they should if they are able to represent true beliefs. So if they're able to correctly think that person believes that it's in the box on the right, then they would expect them to reach in the box on the right. In the comparison condition, which is just a standard knowledge condition, they did this really beautiful thing where they nicely matched it, I think. So works. the setup is the same. There's an experimenter. The lemon goes in the box on the right. An occluder comes up. Instead of the lemon itself moving, um, the box that's over the lemon moves off the table and then moves back onto it. So there's still something that the experimenter didn't have access to. There's still some change in the scene the experimenter didn't know about, but it shouldn't be relevant for their, um, their knowledge about the location of the lemon. So then the occluder goes down and they ask, where does the monkey expect the experimenter to reach? The experimenter expects the monkey to reach in the box on the right. Um, and so I think that's, that's a really nicely, tightly controlled, um, they also replicated it, which is good. So, you know, it's a nicely, tightly controlled, I think good, solid evidence that monkeys seem to succeed in these cases where you could really use a knowledge representation, but they seem to fail in like nearby cases where the belief would still be true, um, but you wouldn't actually typically attribute knowledge. Um, and I think that's that's another piece of evidence that I think is, is is so nice, and it really illustrates that some of the features of the knowledge representation that we care about, like say it not just being true belief, you seem to find evidence for that feature even in non-human primates, so not just in you know, humans that are conceptually sophisticated. So that's yeah, that 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 that's evidence that non-human primates are attributing knowledge. It's seems like it's also evidence that they're not in a very matched case. They're not succeeding in attributing true belief, right? It's a case where they should be able to attribute true belief if they wanted. So then if you think about the question of basicness, the, the idea is that like, well, look, these, these monkeys, I mean, they're like, with their most common ancestor with us was like a, quite a long time ago. So if they're able to represent knowledge in the same way that we're able to represent knowledge, probably that common ancestor had a kind of something like that knowledge ability, right? That knowledge attribution ability. They're not able to successfully represent belief in the way that we would be able to rep represent belief in that case. And what that suggests is that at a later time point, there was probably some f further evolved ancestor of ours, but not of, say, Capuchin monkeys, that had a, that developed the ability to do belief representation. So this kind of tries to get at the phylogenetic question of when did these abilities arise? And are, it's a piece of evidence that knowledge representations or the capacity to represent knowledge probably arose earlier in phylogeny than the capacity to represent belief. That's the, that's the basic inference. One of the cool features of you know, being able to write a paper for BBS or getting in is, is because then you get to hear basically how the whole field thinks <laughs> or thinks about your work, whether good or bad. Um, and so we got 36 comments, um, like short, like 1,000 word papers on this paper. And we had to then write a response where we responded to, to all of them. Uh, which is challenging for sure. Um, 36 response comments, <laughs> a huge array of different ideas. It's really hard to write a response to. Um, but it was also fun. And I think in a way it helps, it certainly helped me at least, I can't speak from the co-authors, but it helped me think through um, what was really different about this approach. And, and we got pushed on a lot of different um, parts of the proposal. So and I think one general objection that people had um, was that, you know, this picture where knowledge is, um, you know, thinking about someone's relation to the actual world, it's like kind of has this fact of thing, isn't really a theory of mind re representation in the first place. Like they really, are, some people are really committed to this idea that for it to be a theory of mind representation, it had to be a representation of someone's understanding completely independent of your own understanding of the world, or it had to be meta-representational in the same way belief is. Um, Another set of um, 
you know, arguments were basically like, I think they're trying to find like, aren't there like other ways or more other ways to explain the kind of basic representation basically. So maybe it could be something as simple as like perceptual access. Like, isn't that all you're finding is like perceptual access is simpler than uh, not or than belief representation. And is that really surprising? And there are ways of pushing back against like it really being a knowledge representation. Or another one was like, maybe what they have the ability to do is represent like kind of like knowledge how or uh, something like that, but not really propositional knowledge representation. Um, so I, I kind of collectively think of those as like thinking about the restrictions on the basic form of mind coming down to like the restrictions about the content you can represent, not like only a visual perspective or only certain kinds of like knowledge how, not um, that it's really a difference between like knowledge and belief. It really boils down to content rather than attitude. Um, a third group of people basically objected to this picture um, where theory of mind really isn't about predicting and explaining behavior, but it's about trying to like coordinate on the actual world or learn from others about the actual world. Um, and they just thought that's the wrong way to think about a uh, theory of mind. Um, and then, you know, nicely, there were some people who like loved the idea, loved the basic picture, and then wanted to extend it in a bunch of different ways. Um, so there were, you know, uh, 10 or 15 papers, I think, pointed out really beautiful ways of trying to take this idea and then run with it in a bunch of different ways and ask uh, interesting new questions. I think one place that people definitely pushed back was, you know, we paint this picture on which belief has really been the central focus of theory of mind research and that maybe people are committed to belief being basic. And I think certainly from the psych certain parts of psychology, that is probably, they wanted to object to that. And they wanted to say, A, that no one was committed to um, belief being basic. We basically thought of belief as a good way, a, sort of the right litmus test for a theory of mind. Um, and B, that like we have been in fact studying knowledge. And I think uh, we try to point out in the, in the paper uh, that there clearly have been, there ha has been good work on knowledge and factor representations. We're not saying that there was no work on that. Um, but I think it, uh, I, we wanted to say that like, if you think about comparatively um, how much work has been done on belief representation versus how much has been done on knowledge representation, it's like wildly out of proportion. I think, especially if you think about the role that those two things probably play in most of our ordinary theory of mind when we interact with other people. Um, so I think I, I remember doing a Google Scholar search, which I think is in a footnote in the paper very early on. And it was like, you know, if you do something like false belief test or false belief task versus like knowledge task or knowledge test or ignorance task or ignorance test, like to what extent is like it really been focused on like belief and false belief in particular. It was like an order of magnitude more, right? It was like maybe 8,000 citations for things that talked about knowledge tests or ignorance tests or tasks or whatever. And then like 90,000 papers or something that talked about, it was like something of that magnitude. It was crazy. Uh, and I think that's out of proportion. Um, and I think basically, I think what, what I want to say is not, um, I think, you know, I think psychologists weren't, certainly at least a decent portion of developmental psychologists weren't committed to this conceptual claim that belief is supposed to be more basic than knowledge. Um, there are some who really wanted to push this kind of like, uh, like core theory of mind ability that emerges like super early in development, like young infants, like eight months old, will have an ability to do false belief representation. And if you think that belief representation is like part of that core concept, then probably you are committed to belief being a very basic, at least as basic as knowledge, not, um, less basic, but, you know, setting the, that, that small group of people aside, I think, yeah, most people probably weren't committed to the idea that a belief really was basic. That was just what they thought was the right way to test it. Um, I think part of the 
consequence, though, of thinking that belief was the right way to go for testing theory of mind was that we know a huge amount of belief and we actually have a relatively poor understanding of how knowledge attribution works. Like, it's not like we have no understanding. People have done really good work on it. Like, Paul Harris is someone who's done fantastic work on knowledge, knowledge attributions in young children, how that develops linguistically, all these, all these evidence. And, like, there's all this beautiful work on, like, this literature called Trust in Testimony, where young children are basically trusting what other people say, depending on whether or not they represent them as knowledgeable or not. And like, truly fantastic work. We try to draw on a lot of that to, to and use that in our paper to argue that, that that's kind of how knowledge works. But aside from that, and some, some other people have worked on knowledge, we don't really know that much about it. Um, so I think a lot of the comments in the paper ended up being like, okay, so wait, exactly how do you think ignorance representations work or something like that, right? You know, exactly how, what's the format of the rep of this knowledge representation? And I think what, if the paper is going to serve any purpose, I think what it, the hope is that it'll kind of push people to really begin focusing on that, the processes involved in knowledge attribution. And then maybe we can have a much better understanding of knowledge attribution in the same way that we have a good understanding of belief attribution. Whether or not knowledge is like the most basic theory of minds, you know, our capacity to attribute knowledge is the most basic theory of my capacity we have, or whether or not it's just like more basic than belief and somewhat basic. That's a good good question. I think I, I, I'm not committed to knowledge being somehow the most basic theory of mind representation that we have. I mean, I think if you look across these things that like visual perspective taking is a super interesting one. So like take, take a seeing representation. I think there's a good chance that that's, certainly as basic as knowledge representation, um, maybe more basic. Like young children seem to start using the word see or words like hear, it's perceptual kind of access things before they start using the word know, you know, at least successfully using the word know. And I think there's probably an argument to be made that there are even more basic uh, theory of mind representations. I think the data will have to bear out whether or not that's the case. Um, but but I, 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 I will say that a feature that is really important of all the ones, all the basic ones is that they're factive. Like all, every single attitude that comes on early is a factive attitude. And I think this, you know, even if it turns out knowledge in the form that we've specified isn't the most basic, I think it points to a different way of thinking about theory of mind attitudes that we should really be studying the factive ones and how those develop and, and that those probably are the most basic theory of mind representations. The paper ends with a call to arms, um, <laughs> maybe. Uh, sort of a strong, strong section header title, but uh, basically the idea that uh, people have been studying belief a ton, maybe we think a bit too much, um, and the idea would be to start studying knowledge in that same way to really understand how knowledge works. Um, so it's sort of a call to arms for the study of knowledge rather than uh, belief or to shift focus in theory of mind research. I mean, I think some of the areas that I'd be really excited about going are like figuring out the signature limits of knowledge. That's like one thing that I think would be super interesting. Like we point to these, some of the limits that we think, you know, these features that knowledge representation should have, like they should be limited to, you know, things that you don't think are inconsistent with your model of the world, like this activity constraint or like, um, you know, that uh, you should be able to represent other people as knowing more than you. But like that ability to represent other people as knowing more than you just like we don't really understand how that's done very well. We don't understand like what's the this is a actually a debate that Evan Wester and Jennifer Nagel and, and I are having right now. Like, what's the kind of content you're attributing to someone and you represent them as knowing something you don't know? Do you represent them as like knowing a set of possible answers? 
do you, is there some kind of different attitude, like a kind of like questioning attitude or some just like some more basic like tagging connection that you have, you represent them as like having to the actual world, even if you don't know what it is. Um, so I think there's all these really cool questions about, yeah, if knowledge representation works this way, then there's like so many avenues to pursue. Like what are the limits of it? What's the format of it? How do you do these like weird things where it doesn't seem like it's clear what the content of the representation is supposed to be? Maybe it, yeah, it'd be really fun to see research try and spell out um, spell out the details for for that stuff. That's it for today's episode. Funding in part was provided by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Policy at George Mason University. Visit our website at journalentries.fireside.fm for more information about Jonathan Phillips, his work, and some of the resources mentioned on today's episode.